Let's give them a big hand. Great job, kiddos. That was awesome. Man, y'all got some pretty youngins, and they can sing too. How about that? How about that? Really fun to see them, and thank you, parents, for all the hard work, and just fun. There's also another little truth about church. If you want to pack it out, put youngins on stage, right? So good morning to you. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, as we continue, uh, this is our second week of a four-week season, our series on glory, and this is Advent as well. And Advent, as we said last week, is a weeks of preparation for the coming celebration of the birth of Christ, an opportunity to sit here between Jesus' first coming and his second coming as we chew on, if you would, who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. And Monty used this phrase last week of waiting well this side of heaven. And to remember uh, that he did come the first time and we are to be ready for his second coming or uh, when we see him again ourselves. Uh, last week, Monty uh, define glory, talked about the glory of God as the word, and this morning we'll continue that glory theme. He defined it last week for us, I put it on your notes, <clears throat> this way, that glory spiritually is weighty or heavy, burdensome, full of splendor, magnificence, Superiority, awe-inspiring, inexpressible beauty and majesty, absolutely pure and terrifying holiness. You notice in that definition there's a stacking on terms because it's difficult to describe the glory of God in human language. He also said this, God isn't only arrayed in beauty, he is the source of it. And I thought the haymaker of this quote is this. God is glorious all by himself, with or without any recognition of his gloriousness. God, glory and God are synonyms. They go hand in hand. And Tony Evans broke it down for us in what I would call common man language. He says, glory is what wet is to water, what blue is to sky, and what heat is to fire. Glory is to God. Amen. How many of you have seen the movie Ben-Hur? Raise your hand. Okay. Very pop, uh, popular movie, obviously a classic. Uh, in that movie, you may remember this scene. Her had been put into prison by the Romans and was being taken to a ship where he would row underneath as a slave. And as an exhausted man, he drops to his knees as he's taken to the ship and cries out, God, help me. At that moment in the movie, now the film only showed the back of Jesus, not his face. Jesus reached down to give him a drink. And at that moment, one of the Roman soldiers raised his whip and screamed at him and said, quit helping that man. Again, in the movie, they didn't show Jesus' face, but they signified or showed Jesus looking at the soldier when the soldier had screamed at him. And immediately the soldier dropped his whip and turned and walked away. 
The intent of the scene in the movie, or the effect, if you would, of the film wanted to portray was that an encounter with Jesus Christ would stun even the hardest, 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 hardest man in order to make him change. That's exactly. If you want to know what John's doing and what theologians call the prologue or introduction of the book of John, verses 1 through 18, he is trying to stun us with who Jesus is. And he does so in those first 18 verses without even mentioning his name until verse 17. Many scholars have said that John gives us the Christmas story without ever mentioning Bethlehem or a shepherd or uh, a star in the sky, but instead he gives us the story behind the scenes of God becoming flesh, being born to a virgin in a manger. It is not historical, a historical story, but it is a deeply and profound theological story. That's what John is doing in these first 18 verses. Yes, he wants to stun us with the glory of who Jesus is. The author of Hebrews has already attempted to do that. We went through the book of Hebrews not too long ago when in 1-3 he says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so last week John stunned us with who Jesus was in terms of the word, this morning he's going to stun us in terms of who Jesus is as creator. Let me read verses 1 through 3 for us. Monty did verse 1, but I'm going to put it all together. And I'm going to substitute every time uh, Jesus' name needs to be inserted, I will read it as such. So it says, John writes, In the beginning was Jesus, and... Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. In, oh, that's verse 4. I have a hard time counting. So, big picture this morning. What is John telling us in verses two through three? I put this in your notes. Jesus is the eternal creator of all things. Now notice first in verse two, it says, he, Jesus, was in the beginning with God, which what that does, it connects back with verse one and picks up that theme while also in order to connect us to the next verse of verse 2, which introduces us to verse 3 that says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Which clearly tells us that Jesus was God's agent in creation. Verse 2, if you look at it, is an absolute declaration that before there was anything, the word Jesus was already with one with God and with God and is God. And then verse t- 3 turns our attention to tell us there's a difference between the created order and the creator. 
So immediately a Gentile reader would look at this and say, wow, that's different from paganism that says that there are many gods that create many parts of the world. This is is one person. And so in some ways, John is is putting in my southern language, spitting straight, hot, biblical, theological fire when he makes this declaration, this God that I speak of, this person, the Lord Jesus, made it all. Here's how Paul put that in Colossians 1, this same truth. He says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. More descriptive, more details, but it's the exact same thing. So not only is Jesus the creator, Paul makes it clear the whole of creation is for him, was created for him. And now he keeps the whole creation running. He he didn't create it and step back and go take a nap. He keeps it running, as the writer of Hebrews says, with the power of his word, minute by minute by minute. There's... There's no way in my mind, I wish I could have seen in the mind of Paul, but you got to remember as a Jewish scholar, the scholar of all scholars, Paul didn't major in uh, PE and health like I did. He knew the Old Testament. You got to be thinking that he was going back to Genesis 1 where it says, let us, plural, make. Let us. God the Father, let us, God the Son, let us, God the Holy Spirit, make when the world was created. He's declaring that here. Second, I want you to notice in verse 3 that it is stated, verse 3 is stated both in a positive way, if you would have it, and in a negative way. Here's how it sounds in the positive way. First part, All things were made through him. That's a positive statement. Secondly, it was stated negatively, which is the last part of the verse. Without him was not anything made that was made. So what John did here, he he left no room for loopholes. With stunning clarity, he stuns us and his readers at the time with the God that he wants to introduce us to. Reminds me of a illustration that I heard, a story that I heard years ago. Uh, the mother went up to her four-year-old son and who was drawing a picture. And the mom says to the son, what are you drawing? And the son says, I'm drawing God. And the mom says, no one knows what God looks like. And the son says, they will when I finish. Now, for a, for a four-year-old, it's easy to think that you can draw a picture of the glory of God. But for us as adults, it, I think it's very natural for us to ask, how should I think about God? How should I know him? Because we can't draw pictures of the glory of God. 
So what John has done here in the written word, he has revealed to us or disclosed to us God is the creator and sustainer of the entire world. And the context of John writing his gospel is huge because for the Jew, what they knew is that God had been silent for 400 years. They had not heard from him since the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. 400 years of complete silence. Here's what Malachi 3 says. This, this book, if you would, that was the last written, revealed word of God about God. Malachi 3 says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. John says, He's here. He is here as the eternal God of the Word. And this, this, the Word, not a Word, but the Word, is the creator and sustainer of the entire world and universe. He has arrived. He is here. In some ways, Advent is about taking this truth this morning and the other three truths that we'll cover in this Glory Advent series and asking questions for us, pondering, considering how are these truths of who Jesus is supposed to change me? How are they to change the way I perceive God, the way I meet with God, the way I pursue God, the way I project on God? My emotions, my feelings, my circumstances. Advent gives us this opportunity to consider all of that. Now, from that central, if you would, biblical theological truth that Jesus is the eternal creator and sustainer of all things, I want to take the rest of our time and give us five implications, or I like to say it this way, five solid truth nuggets that you and I can easily, I think, recognize we need applying to our own Lives. And the first one there in your notes is this truth of who Jesus is, the creator and sustainer, makes us accountable to God. In verse 3, in some ways, it's a setup in John's prologue or introduction to the book. John is making it clear that Jesus was both eternal, yes, therefore he is God, and he's also the creator, therefore he is God. So what's the setup? Scroll down with your eyes or your phone if you have it in your hands. Can't, be, you can't believe I use the word scroll as I teach from the Bible. But go down to verse 10 and 11. It says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not, what, receive him. Now, there ain't no doubt that John is laying the foundation for one that the creator, for a short while, puts on flesh and joins us here in this world. But two, he's laying the foundation how the entire created order is to be structured in such a way that is to be held accountable to its creator, Jesus. Because isn't that how things work? 
If you buy a car and the next week you meet the guy who made and created and designed the car, you're going to listen to him or you're going to listen to the guy down the street who's working at the car place? You get my picture? If you buy a watch and you meet the guy who created and made your watch, that's what John is doing here. It's an amazing truth that we can fail to connect with the doctrine of creation. This doctrine of creation makes you and I and every person that's ever breathed accountable to God. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 4.1. He says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. He confirms Jesus as the creator is the one you will give an account. Paul Put it this way in Acts 17, to the pagans in Athens, he said, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And all of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got some interesting stories about conversations I've had with people about the Lord Jesus. As I've shared Christ with them, as I've engaged them, as I've told them my testimony, right? And there's a general synopsis here as I lay this out. You know, after telling them about Christ, there is, uh, you know, a general response back to me would be something like, uh, you know, Jeff, I'm so excited for you. I'm very happy that you have found help in this person, Jesus. Um, but I want you to know I'm also a spiritual person, and I think about spiritual things. They're important to me. I, you know, I try to meditate some, and I read my horoscope every day, and I rub my crystals and my little beads, and uh, I light candles in my home sometimes and think good thoughts, and um, or I even go to church, or I actually connect, I connect with my God in nature. That's ironic in light of Jesus is that God, right? But Jeff, you have no reason, no reason whatsoever to tell me that the God of your persuasion is better than mine. So back off, Jack. Now, they don't, they don't say that, but I don't want to hear it. So how do you respond to those people? I mean, there's a lot of options. It's the person. It's the context. Do you have time? Are you sitting on a plane? Or is this a long-term friend? And you're sitting around a fire, and you got three more hours before it's time to go to bed, right? There's a lot of options. But at the end of the day, at some point, I must say something like this. I, I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be abrasive. I certainly don't want to hurt our friendship. But you have no idea how much danger you're in. Because the reality is God made you. He created you in your mother's womb, and you owe him. You owe him your life, and it is that God that one day you and I will give an account to. Whether you believe what I told you about him or not, whether you like what I told you about him or not, 
That is the absolute reality. And I want you to know that the reason I'm telling you about the Lord Jesus is because I love you. At some point, you got to get there. Human accountability to God is grounded in creation. And when or if you or I or anyone loses that truth, we immediately get on the path of becoming our own God versus worshiping the God. The bottom line is the created is in rebellion against his creator. The created made by God does not recognize its origin or its maker. And for God, it is unthinkable. It is inexcusable. We'll see that in the next point. Then humans made in the image of God look around at creation and they look at what the word says and still don't recognize him as God. Folks, this is the definition of a deranged, lost mind and heart. We as believers, we must see the disconnect and dysfunction of the connection between God, the creator, and the God that made us and we worship. And I, I just thought of this. It's no wonder over the years that Satan has tried so hard to undercut or undermine Jesus as the creator, to attack the doctrine of creation, because it does show that we are finite and limited, and it does show, on the other hand, that God is not limited and is infinite. The logical and natural response to the one who created us is this. It screams to me, I am not God, which immediately should humble me that I need to learn what it means to submit to the one who is. And in some ways, that is the foundational truth of all of following Christ, is it not? It is a journey of zillion times over learning to submit to the one who made me. John 3, John in 3.19 sums it up this way. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again this morning. In a quicker version, went to Daytona Beach with Campus Crusade for Christ. We're sharing Christ on the beach. I've been a Christian, came to Christ in October. It's now March. I'm quite young in my faith, quite uh, uh, rough around the edges. I know it's hard to imagine. Um, but I was big and in shape. And so I felt confident in my flesh to go share the gospel on the beach until I saw a pack of motorcycle dudes sitting over in the corner of a poolside. As big as me, beards, black leather, you get the whole deal, stereotype. And the guy that led me to Christ, discipling me, is about five, six, about a buck 45. And he said, let's go over there and talk to those guys. I'm like, no, they don't, they don't, I believe they tired, man. They, he said, oh, no, it'd be really fun. <laughs> man, he, we go over there, long story short, they mocked us. 
yapped at us, got intense with us, and I didn't say a word. And Joe, the little teeny dude, said, well, we didn't mean to bother you guys. Thanks for your time. And one guy said, yeah, man, appreciate it. And Joe stood up. I said, oh, we're gone. And he turns, and he says, but one more thing. I said, oh, God. <laughs> he said, the reason you don't like the message I told you is because you love the darkness more than you love the light. I said, Joe, we got to go. <laughs> That's what John is saying here. But the good news is, when we do embrace Jesus as our creator, here's what happens. Point two. Truth nugget two. It makes us worship God and God alone. It makes us worship God and God alone. So you and I give glory to God when we see who he is, and then we respond appropriately to him in worship. Here's how the psalmist put it, Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. So the same John who wrote the gospel, John, also wrote Revelation. And therefore, it's not surprising that in Revelation 4, if you go read that later this week, John gets invited to a worship, to see a vision of a worship session around the very throne of God. That certainly, this is what it looks like for the creator to be worshipped by his creation. And look how he ties those two truths together, creator and creation in verse 411. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created what? All things. The psalmist does the same thing in Psalm 100 verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. So enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Paul does it again in Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And it is why Paul in Romans 1 is so adamant, so hard, so clear, and so strong when he says these words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? They suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. What is the truth they suppress? That God created them. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God had shown it to them. How has he shown it to them? Through his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. All that's been created, we see it, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, is what, is what God says, Every person who has laid their eyes on creation is without excuse. For although they knew God existed, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their 
foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's how the message puts it. It's another version of the Bible, a little more earthy. It says, people knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines who can buy at any, you can buy at any roadside stand. Our worshiping idols, or as the message puts it, cheap figurines, are very obviously, when in our sane mind, they are twisted versions of reality. Are they not? They are unnatural. It is illogical. And when this happens, humans, the worshipers, they take on increasingly unnatural characteristics, characteristics as well as Paul speaks about later in Romans 1. So in Romans, it is clear that you and I are being molded into two images. One is a distortion of creation, or the second one is we are being molded into the image of our creator, Romans 8, 29 says. So our worship either has this trajectory, if you would, to, to our ruin or this trajectory to our redemption and reconciliation and restoration with our creator. But have no doubt, there's no such thing as neutral in spiritual change. <laughs> You're either trajecting one way or the other. So we have, it makes us accountable to God. It makes us worship God and God alone. Then thirdly, it makes us have great comfort in God's sovereign care, sovereign care. So the glory of Jesus as creator screams at us, I think, this, this, this other basic truth. God is on the throne. It is his throne. It is his world. And he's in charge 24-7, 365 times since creation. That's a heavy theological concept there. Starting in Isaiah 40, 12, you can write that verse down. There are basically about 11 rhetorical questions. The vast majority of those questions are answered with the answer, God. <laughs> so he's making a point there. It's like you're at a dinner table and you say, do you know who made that casserole? And you've trained your kids so good, they just go, God, right? God, Jesus, or the Bible. So that's what's happening here. Some of the questions are like this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and weighed the mountains in scales? Who showed man the way of understanding? To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? And then he answers that long list of mostly rhetorical questions with this response. Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint 
He does not grow weary. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. Sorry, I'm thinking of times when I had fainted and he gave, he did not let me faint. Mm. He increases strength. They who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So Isaiah is telling us if this is God's world, and it is, and if he is running, running it, and that he does not sleep and he does not slumber, he does not get tired, he, know when a, he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, he knows when your hair on your head falls out. He didn't have to keep tabs of mine anymore. Then as R.C. Sproul says, listen, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Folks, our text this morning is telling us there's no molecules running around loose. They're all under his sovereign care. He created all of them. And some of you may be saying, well, I just found out I have cancer. I may find that out one day too. It's still under his sovereign care. That molecule was in his control and he is working it for your good in his glory. After studying through that this week, I sat at my desk and I just sat back with teary eyes and I just took a deep breath and breathed out things that were weighing on me and things I was feeling heavy about. Man, that felt great. You and I are not destined for wrath. <laughs> but whether we live or whether we die, we what? We live. And then fourthly, the nugget is, makes us as people share in his glory. Certainly we're the crown jewels of God's creation. We've been ordained, the scripture teaches, as vice regents of his creation where we are to be rulers and stewards of creation in submission to God's ultimate rule as maker and sovereign over all things. Isaiah 43, 7 tells us, that Israel was created for God's glory. Here's what it says. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So man, it's not a new theme, or a, um, it's in the scriptures a lot, what I just read. So man was made to rely on God and to give him glory, but instead we rely on ourselves and we want our own glory. God's heart, though, from the very beginning was to share his glory with his creation, men and women. Listen to what he said to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will make you, you and your people, a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. He's saying, Abraham, I'm going to do such a great work in you and my people 
that the rest of the world will look at you and my name will be great because you're so different than them. Yes, God creates Israel to redeem them, to be a, that they would be his people and he would grace them with his very presence. And in that, they would share in his glory. Isaiah 43, just to reiterate, verse 7, says and means he created us to display his glory or that his glory might be known and therefore praised. Now I want you to listen to how he does this. Man, this is so encouraging. Isaiah 48. I have refined you in the furnace of affliction. Can everybody say amen? The grind is what brings the shine. Can you put it that way? I have refined you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake or glory. For my own sake or glory I do it. For how shall my own name be profaned? He is pressing us. He brings things into our life. He allows things into our life because he is forming us in his image. Folks, he is committed to that. I've said it once from up this pulpit. I've said it a thousand times. But unless you and I get that in all circumstances, we won't see what we need to see. Lastly, in the New Testament, Jesus puts it this way in John 17. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, which is us, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Man, he saves us. He works in us to bring us into alignment with our creator in order that we would glorify our creator. And then lastly this morning, which I want to be our so what, is makes us confident in our eternal home. Uh, there's a great general truth to all people, and that is to begin with the end in mind. And folks, if there's anything certain, if you know Christ, well, if you know Christ, your eternal home is heaven. Your eternal home is glory, pure glory, as we defined it and more, because you're in the full, you're getting the full experience of the glory of God in his presence. We live on this earth. God created this earth. He created the heavens. But here's what the scriptures teach us. They teach us that there's going to be a new what? Heaven and a new earth. That's our forever eternal home. And here's what John, again, I, I'll stay with John because he wrote the certainly book of Revelation. Here's how he describes it. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. So the one who came the first time created this and the one who's coming the second time and who came the first time is creating the new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them as they will be his people. And God himself will be, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How many you have tears that need to be wiped away? And death shall be no more. How many have been brokenhearted for the loss of a loved one, a physical death? Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I, I am making all things new, a new heaven, a new earth, and everything about your existence I'm making new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Folks, that's where we're heading. I want you to take a few minutes this morning and think about, really think about your eternal home. I find personally that the more I think about eternity, the better I do here on earth. That's the bottom line, the glory that I'm going to experience both in my body and in my environment is going to make me worship like crazy. Take a minute and think about eternity. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful for a moment this morning to be able to kind of shake free of all of the distractions, all of the noise, and to be confronted again in a beautiful way with you as our maker, and not one that is detached or distant indifferent but the lover of our souls Lord I'm grateful for that Lord would you help us to see you in all of your glory 
as much as we can in these days and live in light of that until you return. Lord, thank you for that. We praise you this morning. You are worthy. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.